From the outside, Jeffrey Dahmer seemed like any other average guy. You probably already know all about the gruesome secrets he was hiding, but do you know how he was caught? Let me tell you, it wasn't some fancy detective work or Sherlock Holmes level sleuthing. Because no one knew Dahmer had a taste for human flesh. No, it was a little something called being in the wrong place at the wrong time. His last victim managed to escape and lead cops back to Jeffrey's apartment of horrors. And today I want to tell you exactly what happened that night. So stay right there because I've got a story you will not forget. When Jeffrey Dahmer was finally caught, he admitted he was planning to build a shrine in his apartment using his victim's remains. He even drew this sketch of the altar, complete with labels where 10 different painted skulls, whole skeletons, and incense would be displayed on and around a black table. Here is the chilling reason why he was building it. As a sort of uh, memorial, uh, a, a point where I could, I don't know. It's, it's, it's so bizarre and strange, it's hard to describe. A place where I could collect my thoughts. There were two moments when Dahmer was almost caught. The first came in 1989. He'd already fully given in to his depraved urges. He was living with his grandmother in Wisconsin, and she'd had it up to here with him. After being honorably discharged from the Army and spending a little time in South Florida, Jeffrey moved in with her at the end of 1981. At first, things were great. He was polite, respectful, handy around the house. He got a job at the Milwaukee Blood Bank, and yes, it's true, he did sort of drink blood there. He tried it. He said, he tried a vial of it. Not a great sign. But less than a year later, he was laid off. For the next two years, he lived on his grandmother's money. Now, this did not go over too well. It wasn't just that he was out of work. He was also breaking her house rules. He was drinking a lot, smoking even more, looking at pornography, bringing strange men back to his room at all hours. Of course, she didn't realize that some of those men never left, but she knew enough about his bad habits to want him out. In 1988, she finally kicked him to the curb. Well, Dahmer moved into his own apartment and wasted no time pursuing his fantasies. Two days later, he lured a 13 year-old boy back to his place with the promise of 50 bucks in exchange for some pictures. The boy was drugged and fondled, but he managed to escape. Dahmer pleaded guilty to second-degree sexual assault. He was sentenced to eight years in prison, but he got out after less than a year. Then he moved back in with his grandmother. With Jeffrey back in the house, she put her foot down on his bad behavior with a call to his father, Lionel, complaining about the pornography Jeff left lying around. So Lionel paid his son a visit, and that led to the infamous box incident. But listen to Dahmer tell you about it himself. I had a box in my uh, bedroom closet and uh, it it uh, contained uh, the mummified head and, and uh, genitals of uh, a young man I met in one of the bars down in Milwaukee. And it was a locked metal box. Uh, my dad uh, one week came to visit and happened to see it and uh, wondering what was in it. He didn't know. Nobody knew. I told him it was uh, pornography, some magazines. And we, he wasn't satisfied with that answer. We got into uh, a bit of an argument because I wouldn't open it up. He uh, took the, the locked box down to the basement and was about to uh, smash it open. Lionel came within seconds of finding the remains of Anthony Sears, 
The 26-year-old was dismembered in Grandma's bathtub, but Dahmer didn't want to let him go. He soaked his head and genitals in acetone and kept them in the box. It was Lionel himself who first taught his son how to preserve bones. Even as a kid, Dahmer was fascinated by skeletons and bones. One day he asked his father, who worked as a research chemist, about preserving animal remains. Well, Lionel was thrilled. His quiet son seemed to be interested in science, so he showed him how to bleach the bones. The two of them bonded over dead rats they'd find under the house. Their bones piled up in a plastic pail that the family affectionately called Jeff's fiddlesticks. But little Jeff wasn't satisfied with dead rodents. Uh, in biology class, we had uh, the usual dissection of uh, fetal pigs, and uh, I took I took the remains of that home and, and kept uh, the skeleton of it, and I just started branching out uh, dogs, cats. I suppose it could have turned into a, a, a normal hobby like taxidermy, but it, it didn't. It veered off into Around that same time, he tried taking his first human victim. Now, he'd become obsessed with a male jogger. So one day, he took a baseball bat and hid in some bushes along the guy's route, thinking this was going to be it, his first kill. But according to the prison psychiatrist, the guy didn't go jogging that day. And that just proves that being lazy can save your life. Unfortunately, Dahmer didn't give up. His killing spree continued until May 1991, when he met 14-year-old Conorak Synthesome foam at the mall. Coincidentally, that was the same way he met Conorak's brother two years earlier. He was the 13-year-old that got away. Sadly, Conorak would not be so lucky. He agreed to go back to Dahmer's apartment. He thought he was going to earn some money posing for a few pictures. But the infamous serial killer had something much more sinister in mind. He drugged the 14-year-old, raped him, then drilled a hole into his skull and poured acid into it to turn him into a zombie. Dahmer had this fantasy about creating submissive sex slaves that he could keep with him always and control. In a video deposition for a civil lawsuit that Conorak's family filed, Dahmer talked about what happened next. Dahmer popped out for more beer while Conorak slept. While he was gone, his victim got out of the apartment and almost got away. A girl passing by saw the naked, bleeding boy and called 911. But just as the police got there, so did Dahmer. It is hard to believe what Dahmer managed to pull off next. I saw him sitting on the sidewalk. Two girls were with him. They called the police. Mm-hmm. And I think it was started quickly. And they told him he was a friend. He gets drunk. He was not wanting to go back. So one officer grabbed him by this arm, another officer grabbed him by the other arm. They walked him up the apartment. Mm-hmm. And they left. And that's when I did the second mm-hmm. Right away? Mm-hmm. How long did it take for the guy? That was maybe. 
immediately. He convinced them that 14-year-old Konarak was actually 19. When the officers escorted him back to his apartment, he must have thought it was all over. You see, Konarak was not the only victim in the apartment at the time. Tony Hughes lay dead in the bedroom. Now, Tony was a 31-year-old aspiring model when he met Dahmer just two days earlier. He died after Dahmer tried his drilling technique on him. But even though the apartment smelled like literal death, the officers bought Dahmer's story and left the bleeding naked boy alone with him. Intoxicated Asian naked male was returned to his sober boyfriend and uh, we're going to 30 minutes after they left, Konarak was dismembered. Now, you're probably wondering why the 14-year-old would speak to the man who molested his brother, except he didn't know the man was out of jail already. Another brother said they didn't know Dahmer's name or even exactly what he looked like. It was just a horrifying coincidence. Two months later, on July 22, 1991, the monster of Milwaukee was finally caught. Now, Dahmer went out early that Monday night, around 6 p.m. His favorite trick was telling men he was a professional photographer willing to pay for models. Tracy Edwards is having a few beers at the mall with a couple of friends that night when Dahmer approaches them with his usual spiel. He says he's in town from Chicago taking care of his sick grandmother, but he's looking for models if anyone wants to make some extra money. Well, Tracy agrees to go back to his apartment with him and talk about it. The plan is for his friends to meet up with them at Jeffrey's apartment later, but Jeffrey makes sure to give them the wrong address. But when they get to the Oxford apartment building, going the back ways, by the way, through the alley so no one would accidentally see them, even though Dahmer tells him it's safer that way. So when they get back to apartment 213, Tracy testifies that everything seems normal, except for the smell. It reeks of something foul, something he can't quite put his finger on. And the neighbors have been complaining about the stench for months, but Dahmer always has some kind of excuse. His freezer broke, all his meat spoiled, his fish died, he needs to get rid of the tank. This time, Jeffrey tells him it's a broken sewer pipe. Building maintenance will take care of it. Now, at this point, Tracy is not afraid, not even when he spots boxes of acid in the living room. It's for cleaning bricks, Dahmer tells him. The two of them sit down on the couch and have a drink. The Trace is still deciding whether or not he wants to actually pose. So they're kind of chatting about that and other random things. Just, you know, having a conversation. And Dahmer is still acting completely normal. But it only takes a second for everything to change. Dahmer interrupts him to point out his aquarium on the other side of the room. And when Tracy turns his head to look, Jeffrey sticks a knife into his ribs and slaps a handcuff around his left wrist. It's not just his behavior that changes. Dahmer looks different. His face, his body. He doesn't even seem like the same guy that approached them at the mall. Well, Tracy tries to de-escalate the situation, but Dahmer's not backing down. If you don't do what I want, I'm going to kill you, he says. So then in the next second, he seems to calm down. He tells Tracy he's got the key to the cuffs in his bedroom and he sort of pulls him into the other room. Well, Tracy's not fighting it because if there's a chance to get these cuffs off, he's going to take it, right? Well, the living room was bad, but the bedroom is worse. The first thing Tracy notices is the blue 57-gallon drum in the corner of the room. The smell coming off it is stomach-turning. Then there's the bed. He doesn't want to know what the big red stain on and around it is from. The Exorcist 3 is playing on the TV in the background. It's Dahmer's favorite psych-up film. He's been watching it two, maybe three times a week. He even slips in yellow contacts to look and feel even more like the movie's demon, an executed serial killer known as the Gemini Killer. That's super on the nose. But that's not the worst part. The worst is the chanting. 
Still holding the other end of the handcuff around Tracy's wrist, he and Dahmer are sitting on the bed watching this movie, but Dahmer is rocking back and forth and chanting. Next, he tells Tracy to lay face down on the floor. Something inside Tracy says, do not do that. So he lays on his side. Well, Jeffrey sort of lays across him with his head on Tracy's chest and the knife now against his genitals. Now, if that was any other couple at any other time and place, it might have been loving, but this isn't that time or place. Jeffrey tells him he's going to eat his heart. Thinking fast, Tracy asks to use the bathroom, and Dahmer escorts him in and stands behind him, still holding the handcuff while he goes. For the next four hours, Dahmer has more mood swings than a teenage girl. Tracy testifies about his silence one minute, then the next he's talking about work, the next he's aggressive. Now, through it all... Tracy's just trying to survive by, you know, being friendly, keeping calm. If the choice is flee, fight, or fawn, Tracy's all about fawn and then wait to flee and fight. He's waiting for his moment and it comes around 1130 that night. He asks to sit in the living room where the air conditioner is. He says, let's have a beer. I want a beer. Then he asks to go to the bathroom. This time, Dahmer doesn't try to follow him. This is it. It's time. Tracy gets up like he's going to go use the bathroom, but instead he punches Dahmer and runs out the front door. The next thing he knows, he's on the street corner flagging down two Milwaukee police officers, Robert Routh and Rolf Mueller. He's waving his handcuffs saying some freak kidnapped him and he leads them back to apartment 213. But nothing could have prepared them for what they find inside. Jeff opens the door just as calm as you please and he says, yes, I put the handcuffs on Tracy, but then he kind of tries to explain it away like he's done before. And he implies they're having some kind of lover spat and he points the officers toward the handcuff key on his bedroom dresser. Now, in the bedroom, Officer Mueller spots a knife peeking out from under the bed. Then he sees the Polaroids of dismembered bodies in an open dresser drawer. When he walks back into the living room, he's got some in his hand. There were 74 in total. 74! Says these are for real, he says to his partner. When Jeff sees what he's holding, he tries to make a break for it. But the officers take him down and call for backup. And the Polaroids... Just the beginning. Officer Mueller opens the refrigerator door to see a human head on the bottom shelf. There's also a tray of blood, hearts, part of an arm wrapped in plastic, torso, organs in the freezer. Four more heads are found in the kitchen. Seven other skulls are tucked away around the apartment. Inside that terrifying blue barrel are two skeletons, hands, genitals, more torsos dissolving in acid. If Tracy Edwards had not made his move and escaped, he would have been Jeffrey Dahmer's 18th known victim. Even the killer himself knew he was a monster. For what I did, I should be dead, he says to these two stunned officers, standing in his apartment, wondering why they didn't just go to dental school. So Dahmer was sentenced to 16 life terms in prison, one for every victim he was convicted for, even though he confessed to 17 and actually murdered God knows how many. The key witness against him was his last almost victim. In 1994, Jeffrey Dahmer was beaten to death in prison by another inmate, and that is a crazy story. You should check out our recap to hear what Christopher Scarver did to the infamous serial killer. But if you're interested in finding out what happened to Tracy Ed Edwards after his brush with death. Well, so were we. Sadly, Tracy's life was saved, but he was never the same. With the notoriety surrounding Dahmer and the trial, Tracy's name and face were in papers around the country. And it turns out he was wanted in Mississippi for the sexual assault of a 14-year-old girl. Police extradited him back there to charge him with the crime. When he got back to Milwaukee, he sued the police for $5 million for not catching Dahmer sooner, especially since, you know, they almost had him when Conorak escaped. But his lawsuit was thrown out. He turned to drugs and alcohol to escape the trauma, but... 
that made it hard to hold down a job. And for years, he drifted in and out of homeless shelters in jail. Then, 20 years later, he was arrested for murder. On July 26, 2011, when he was 52, he allegedly helped throw a man to his death off a Milwaukee bridge. Although others say he was actually trying to pull the guy back up, not toss him off. But he pleaded guilty to aiding a felon, and he served a little less than two years in prison. When he got out, he disappeared from the public eye, and where he is and what he's doing today is unknown. Sad ending for such a brave guy. Thanks for watching. And don't forget to check out that story about how Dahmer got killed. It's nuts. And that's your recap. Thanks for hanging out with us today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, go ahead and tap that subscribe button so you never miss a story. But don't go away. Catch up on more recaps right here, right now. Until next time, take care.